Why shouldn't we rule ourselves again? It was the dragons we bowed to. And now the dragons are dead. There sits the only king I mean to bend my knee to. The king of the north! I'll have peace on those terms. They can keep their red castle. And their iron chair, too. The king in the north. Am I your brother? Now and always. Now and always. My sword is yours. In victory and defeat. From this day until my last day. Hi, and welcome to Cut to Black a podcast about the way we experience television. I'm Gretchen Felker-Martin, and with me is my illustrious co-host, Shanti Collins. Glad to be here, as always. And today, we're going to talk about the moment at the end of Game of Thrones' first season, where Rob Stark is proclaimed King in the North by his fellow Northern noblemen. And we cut briefly to outside the hall, where these soldiers, you know, peasant levies, who are, are taken from villages to fight, look at each other and it's very clear that they know what this means for them that they are fucked yeah <laughs> and it's, a... it's it's just so i mean no pun intended but it's very stark that yes yes inside is this scene straight out of lord of the rings and outside is is just like joe and eddie from down the bar at the corner being like ah shit man <laughs> It's a great moment, and it really took me aback the first time I saw it. Because obviously there's nothing like that in the books, because the books, with very few exceptions, unfold almost entirely through the points of view of the main characters who are all nobles. Yeah. So to be able to take us out of that big tent or whatever it is where all the lords are proclaiming Rob the King in the North, and then to show soldiers get worried about it, I was like, ooh. Yeah, that was a really smart departure. Yeah. And I think that for the first season of the show, smart departures really kind of helped make the show in a way. I think that, you know, one thing that everybody talks about or talked about, and certainly I think still to the extent that they talk about the season, is the scene between Robert and Cersei, which is the most obvious example of something that they invented for the show because Robert was never a point of view character in the books and Cersei wasn't until later on in the series. Right. It's the one where they talk about how their shitty marriage has held the kingdom together. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And people really liked that and valued it because it gave you a perspective on these characters that you couldn't get anywhere else. And things like that are kind of the more showy version of things like this that we're talking about with the soldiers reacting to hearing their Lord be proclaimed King and realizing everything that that means for them and for the future. Um, It it was a, it was a very 
uh, surprising moment. And I re- I really dug it. I really did. Me too. I mean, Game of Thrones is justly famous for being the first epic fantasy to look at what the things that happen in epic fantasy do to average people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's not that it's never been tackled before, but Martin tackles it at scale, like to the point where you could make an argument that it's one of the primary thematic drivers of the whole series. Mm -hmm. And and I, I do think that carries over into the television show. Yeah, I do too. And you just don't see that in other fantasy. You, no, you really you don't. don't. Unless, unless your protagonist is like some peasant who becomes the the savior of the world, which is the and thing even, that happens all the time. You know, Even then, it's just like, well, your village will get wiped out in the first chapter, and that's that. Yeah, and it never really... You don't really get a whole lot of exploration of what it means to be poor in this world. Right. You know, in, in these kinds of worlds, or what it means to be a foot soldier and that kind of thing. And right. Exactly. You know, like not what life is like for Aragorn, but what life is like for Rohan guy, number 237. Right. Exactly. And or, it's a- or the guy who makes that guy's saddle. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and these people are all over game of Thrones. We're meeting them constantly. We're seeing their lives all the time. The night's watches is, is made up of like, shitty petty criminals mm-hmm. who had nothing <laughs> yeah and gosh you know there's the um the kids that get taken to the night's watch along with aria hot pie and lami green hands and people like that yeah even beyond the people that you actually get to spend some time with i think that even in in the big battle scenes certainly starting with blackwater a point is made to show you the suffering of the soldiery, you know, like you in Blackwater, when that explosion takes place, that big wildfire explosion, you know, one of the things I remember most vividly about it besides the visual is just the screams, which again, most fantasy doesn't do or bother with, or, you know, and I'm not necessarily, I'm not, it's not like I'm sitting here finding fault with the Lord of the Rings movies or anything like that, but it's just a different, It's an entirely different atmosphere. Yes, it is. Because the show has carved out the space for thinking about the people affected by the Game of Thrones, the titular Game of Thrones. Right. I mean, when a charge hits in Game of Thrones, there's, there's grandeur, I think, that they show on screen. Certainly there's, there's spectacle, like, you know, Danny's dragons dropping from the sky. Those things are meant to inspire awe. But when the, the moment of kinetic payoff comes, the moment when battle is actually joined, it's horrible. Yeah. It's just like this huge rolling explosion of crunches and pops and splats and, and then shrieking, like just endless fucking shrieking. It's so awful. Mm-hmm. And I think the battles as they go, it gets more and more severe in that respect. Absolutely. You know, the dead bodies of peasants and soldiers play such a role in, let's say, Hard Home or Oof. the Battle of the Bastards. Um, you know, they become in the Battle of the Bastards, they're like a geographical feature of the battlefield, which again right. is not they something you see in the world. They literally become a hill. Yeah. 
completely unforgettable. And that's what this this moment outside the hall where Rob is proclaimed king, like these people know that because that's how their parents or their grandparents died. Mm-hmm. Like that's what life is when you're a disposable resource for a class of people whose pastimes include fighting to decide who gets to sit in a chair. Yeah. <laughs> and these are the good, you know, these this are the, is good true guys. Of the good guys. This is true of the good guys. Yeah. Like this whole time we're sitting here, we're really, I mean, I guess we're talking about Stannis's men. Stannis is a, I don't know what you would call Stannis. I think I called him an anti-villain once because he's like a villain without the charisma of a villain. <laughs> yeah, I think you could make a good case for Stannis as either an anti-hero or an anti-villain. He's yeah. like, he has recognizable drives. He has good and bad qualities. Yep. Ultimately, I think he embodies like the worst of the nobility in a lot of ways. Just in yeah. terms of like his boundless entitlement and his total inability to own that quality. Like he has zero self-awareness, none. That's very true. In a way, I think his, his only moment of dignity is just the small little go ahead, do your duty that he says to Brienne when he dies. Yeah. I thought that was a really excellent scene. It was like the only time that he ever admitted like, Oh, well I'm, I'm in the wrong here. Yeah. You know, that never happened before it happened only when he died. But even beyond Stannis, I mean, we're talking about Jon Snow in, in a lot of these cases. Yeah. We're talking about Rob Stark. We're talking about characters who we care about, characters who are the good guys. Likeable, uh, handsome. They've, you know, they've got it all going. Yep, yep. And and who are not Joffreys, you know. They're, no. they're not people who torture those weaker than them for fun and because right. they can. And I think in a way the show introduces – the Joffreys and Ramses of the world. Cause without people that loathsome, you might start to think a little too hard <laughs> about who we're rooting for here, you know, right. because, because so much attention is paid to what happens to the little people. And, th- you know, there are, there are even some, some relatively major characters who provide us with that point of view that again, we don't have in the books because the books are concerned almost entirely with the nobility other than like the prologues and epilogues. Well, even the epilogues are kind of nobility centric, but um, like Roz, the prostitute from Winterfell who travels to King's Landing, like that's a character they invented specifically to give us a point of view outside of the aristocracy. Yeah. I really wish they had kept that character. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see her through to the end. Yeah. Um, I think that could have been some really juicy stuff. I guess she died to show that Joffrey was a piece of shit, which is something we kind of already knew. Yeah, not exactly information we needed. Yeah. But I mean, in a way, that kind of fatalism is is what the show trafficked in, you know? Sure. You know, I'm I'm not saying it was a sink or swim matter for the show. I just think it would have been more interesting if they'd left her alive. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Instead, what you get when the, as the narrative draws to a close, now I'm sitting here thinking like, wouldn't it be interesting if Roz were around for the final attack on King's Landing, like providing us with that kind of perspective, what you get instead in that final attack is that mother and child who were really kind of the center of the action for a lot of that episode. Yeah. And, that's fucking brutal. That really is brutal. I think it's a big reason why people got so pissed off about it, too. I really I think do. so, too. Uh, it's a horrible thing to watch. And not only that, this is what 
I think this was one of those shows most courageous and meaningful decisions was that after the episode where Arya Stark saves the entire world with one thrust of her sword, she can't save a kid. Yeah. And she can't save a kid from the person she's pledged to serve. Yep. That's important. I I don't. In the same situation that the mad King put Jamie. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. That, that she's watching all these people burn alive around her essentially because Daenerys is having a PTSD episode. Right. And And there's just nothing she could do. The scale of it is so vast that even if she could save this one incidental life, what the fuck would it matter? The city is still just utterly ruined. And I'm glad you brought up Jamie because that's worth considering too. You know, one of the things that humanizes Jamie Lannister for us after he gets his hand cut off is his exchange with Brienne in, in the baths where he explains that he killed the mad King to keep the mad King from destroying King's landing by burning it up with wildfire. Right. And what happens at the end of the show? King's landing is burned up. It's, it's literally his worst nightmare. Yep. It's the thing that he sacrificed his reputation to prevent. And it happens at the hands of, a person who had literally been the savior of humanity like a couple of weeks prior. Right. And I, I think that kind of attention to the consequences of war on everyday people who have no say in it. I don't know that I've ever seen that in a, in another TV show. Yeah. Short of something like band of brothers. Band of brothers. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, but certainly this is the only time where this exists in a fantasy context in, right, in film. Right. Cause band of brothers, you know, world war two is still the good war to us. Right. So when we watch world war two movies and we see the grunts, you know, suffering and dying, we're like the moral of the story is almost always, Oh, it was worth it in the end, you know? Right. Cause we stopped the Nazis. Right. Exactly. And, and heroically hired all of them. Yeah. <laughs> And don't say anything about Japan. We don't talk about that. Yeah, I don't. I don't recall that they were involved. No. Yes. I just think it's re- like I'm. I'm. I'm stumbling over my words because, you know, I remember when I first read the books, thinking like, this is so innovative, but also so obvious. Right. And and you wonder why it took this long to do. I mean, obviously there are some antecedents to what Martin did, like. Chronicles of the Black Company by Glenn Cook. That's what I was thinking. But um, even that is is much less serious. Right. And everyone in that, the peasant perspective that you get in those books, so to speak, they're mercenaries. Right. They're career killers. Right. And they're in the war by choice. They might not have a choice of what happens to them after they signed up. They don't. And, and that becomes kind of the driver of the, the narrative throughout the series is what they get themselves into. But they got themselves into it. Like... Yeah they're they're not standing outside their tents being like oh shit what have we done they're like they know that's their job yeah whereas in game of thrones there's so many just hundreds and hundreds of instances where people have absolutely no power because someone decided to pay attention to them who was of yeah. a different social class yeah um and- you know like even the moment where Arya and the hound both of whom are hunted and wanted 
walk into the middle of that father and daughter, their house, and wind up robbing them and beating them and leaving them. And as the hound is leaving, he's like, oh, what difference does it make? Someone else would have done it. And then seasons later, he winds up back at the house by just like a trick of fate and they're they're dead in the corner. (sighs) And it's so haunting because you can see him thinking through it. Like, did they do this after I took from them? And then, you know, maybe it was something else, something unrelated. And then ultimately that it doesn't matter that he, he killed them. That is such a hard moment to even think about. Yeah. Honestly, very hard. And when they make it, they, they suggest very clearly that what happened was the father killed his daughter to spare her starving to death and then killed himself. Yeah. And as this is lame to say, but as the father of a daughter, it really got to me, not because having a child or having a daughter specifically gives me any unique perspective into anything. It just has taught me what it's like to be a father of a small child. And well, it's terrifying to love a child. It's terrifying. You're scared all the time. Yep. And, you know, I I think it does give you a different perspective. I I don't think you mean it in like the weirdo, hyper-personal sort of white power way that politicians say as a father of daughters. Right. I, I understand what you mean. Like, since my family lost a baby last year, my relationship to art has changed completely. Mm hmm. And that was one of the things when I was rewatching Game of Thrones late last year. Uh, I it just knocked me flat on my ass. There, there's so much violence towards children in that show. Yeah. And it's, I think if you're going to make a show about war, that is a moral necessity mm-hmm. it, because it really, really steps hard on the brakes in terms of anything seeming cool. Yeah. What I always used to say about that phenomenon, specifically with regards to the violence against children in Game of Thrones, which really is endemic, like season two, I think the first four episodes begin with a child or an infant getting murdered. It's really something else. And what I always used to say about it is that I'm glad that they did this because the point they're trying to make is that when you unleash violence on this scale, the violence necessarily and inherently flows downhill to affect the most vulnerable people, the people least able to fight back. Right. It's the same reason that the vast majority of human sacrifices over history have been preteen children. Like it, it's so fucking simple. You would never even think of it because it's so sick. They're the easiest to control physically. Yeah. So of course that's who dies in war. That's, that's why women and children are, are butchered when a city is sacked. Mm hmm. And there's plenty of that going on too, even with um, the Northern soldiers who, again, these are the good guys ostensibly. Right. And And I think the show does a good job of something that Martin certainly lavishes a lot of time and attention on, which is that an army is its own monster. Yeah. You, once you say March, that's about all the control you're going to have. Yeah. There's that scene uh, in the, um, you know, the Brienne and Jamie road movie portion of the show where she comes across sex workers who've been hanged from a tree, you know, with the placard they laid with lions or whatever. 
And so she has like one of her first fight scenes is against two northern soldiers. That's right. Two soldiers. Yeah. That's right. And I'm glad they did that. You know, I think still to this day, one of my favorite works of art uh, pertaining to Game of Thrones is my partner Julia Graffer's piece called "They Lay with Lions," which is just a tree with women hanging from it. And I remember when I first got into the books and first got into you know, and was discovering fan art of the books for the first time. And it was just so exciting to see people's interpretations of these characters. And I got to that and I was like, whoa. Yeah. You know, it's in its own class. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's not like a, you know, the hound in a varsity jacket with Sansa <laughs> hugging him or whatever, which I've seen. So. Jesus. Yeah. It's all out there. Yeah. No, I mean, I not that all those depictions seem so immoral to me. Julia is piping up in the background to say that like she found a lot of those depictions of the characters immoral and that's why she chose to do what she did. Yeah, um, and I I don't and, disagree. You know, I think that it's I think that to take something so fundamentally aimed at showing war for what it is and like the abusability of power structures for what it is and and take some little cutesy story out of that for yourself Mm -hmm. you know i i don't know that i would say it's like an impactful moral failure but i do think it betrays like some sort of deep lack of perspective and insight yeah you know a lot of you know i I don't want to get into a whole thing about fan art or fanfic or whatever but you know i think a lot of it is just kind of trying to take art that has meant something to you and make it a little cozier so that you can kind of live with it. You can kind of curl up with it a little bit more than you could otherwise. Right. Which when you're confronted with this fucking litany of horrors, that is the song of ice and fire, a game of Thrones. Like I get the impulse. I do. I do. I, I, I'm not nuts about the results and I don't know. That's how you want to live your life in terms of your relationship to art is to like, well, what if we made it cute? Um, right. Stand it all down. Right, but I get the impulse, you know, because th- these are unsparing works, and sometimes you want to spare people a little bit, I guess. Yeah, that's a that's a charitable way to think of it. I'm trying to be charitable. I'm trying. Right, because I'm over here thinking they're all fucking babies, so it's, <laughs> it's good that you're being nice. You know, another thing that I always think of when I think about the little people in Game of Thrones and the things that they go through is the series the trips that it takes to Craster's Keep. Oh yeah. yeah. Which is this this little homestead out north of the wall that is owned, held, whatever you want to say, by a wildling named Craster who fucks his own daughters and marries them and then fucks the daughters he has with them and marries them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera and he is an ally of the night's watch they bring him gifts he gives them information and shelter and they you know he's 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 not subject to their laws is sort of how they sleep at night about it right and i think it's it's pretty clear in both the books and the television show that that's the seven kingdoms Craster's not doing anything that Joffrey wouldn't if fewer people were looking at him. Yeah. And 
the whole institution of monarchy is like, well, what if you were in charge of every aspect of everyone's life and whatever asinine shit you braid in the middle of a drunken rampage became law for thousands. And this is totally acceptable to some of the most honorable people in the entire series. You know, G.R. Mormont, the Lord Commander before John, has put up with this for presumably decades. Mm -hmm. You know, Craster is an older man. He's in his like 50s or 60s. Yeah. This has been going on a long, long time. It reminds, it's a more horrifying version, I think, of of the relationship that the FBI had with Whitey Bulger in Boston. Yes. With like, they're keeping a murderer on the payroll, basically. And there is that really moving and powerful moment, an image at the end of the Craster's Keep storyline when John has raided it to put down a mutiny that took place there. And he offers the Craster's quote unquote wives sanctuary. And they're like, no, no, we're done with all of you people. You let this happen. So they just stand and watch the place burn down. Right. And And then they walk away into the wilderness where presumably they die. Yeah. It's um, another very, very strong moment. For, yeah. For a storyline that I think that lost a lot of people at, at a, after a point because Absolutely. what the mutineers did was so awful. Um, Unsurprisingly, was, that's a, a storyline that I thought was really good. Yeah. I think when I wrote about it, I expressed some reservations of, of like how the rape of the wives was played after the mutiny took place because there's like stuff going on in the background and, and while people talk and I just, I don't know. I was a little weirded out by that, I guess. But at the same time, I also think that I was like receiving that message so strongly from basically literally everybody else who wrote about that show for a living that I kind of maybe went along to get along a little bit. Um, Sure. And there's no shame in that. And also it's just tremendously unpleasant to watch. It feels very bad. Yeah, it does. You know, you're, you're seeing this group of people, the nihilism of it is really upsetting because they have no long game. Right. They're just literally raping these women to death and eating through Craster's stores and that's it. Yeah. Where are they going to go? What are they going to do? Right. There's, There's nothing for them. It's incredibly sick and horrible. Yeah. And, you know, maybe there's a kind of like, well, it's the end of the world. We might as well do whatever we want anyway, because these are all soldiers who have faced the dead. Right. Horrible, horrible, unthinkable stuff. Right. So they just, they're like, fuck it. We'll we'll be monsters ourselves, I guess. And I think that moments like these, to take it back for a second to audience and critical reception of the show, without being condescending or getting my backup about it, like, I do think that people still, for all that Game of Thrones broke the mold in terms of what it would do to main characters and keeping main characters in jeopardy, I think people kind of wanted to have their cake and eat it too in a couple of senses. One, they wanted main characters to still continuously die for no real reason other than that's what the show does, they thought. Mm-hmm. you know. So like, you started hearing about plot armor. And after a certain yes. point, it's like, no, it's not plot armor. This is just a, this is just a show about these people. It's right. about them. Like Tony Soprano had had plot armor. It was a show about him. You know, that's it's, just plot how it armor works. Is, 
that's not a criticism. No, you are you are repeating the title of a TV tropes page. It's a TV trope thing. Yep, it's nothing. It's an observation. Yeah, and um, I also think people just wanted a happy ending, and absolutely, they wanted the good guys to be good, and they wanted them to win, and they wanted it to be fairly unequivocal, and you know maybe some sad things happen, but them's the breaks, and you move on with your life, and instead you get this fucking horror show at Craster's Keep. You get the horror show at King's Landing. Yeah, you'd think that they would stop being indignant when something that in a normal fantasy novel would be played as heroism ends in a nightmare. Yeah. And like the point that George Martin is making is not, oh, well, people are monsters and everything they do is terrible. The point is that war uniquely is an uncontrollable and monstrous human enterprise. Right. Seems pretty straightforward to me, it's honestly. So, it's so straightforward. It's so yeah. straightforward. Like, I mean, this has just been beaten to death. But the the outrage about the the way that the series penultimate episode went when Daenerys burns King's Landing to the ground, mm-hmm. and she burns it because her identity has started to crumble. She has been betrayed by multiple close advisors. She's lost her lover. She is completely without any of the friends that she has made over the course of the show. Sir Jorah has just died. Her best friend has just died. And Miss Ande, she was killed by the Lannisters. Right. By the people in a, whose, whose city she's attacking. They made a fucking show of it, too. They yep. made a production out of it. I mean, there's there's more reasons that this siege ended in this exact way than you can shake a stick at. And behind that is, I think, one of the series' most interesting depictions of a peasant, a, a nobody, who is Miri Mazdur from the first season. The, yeah midwife and sorceress who is raped and enslaved by Daenerys's husband's Kalasar, his army. And it's really clear that Danny sees herself as this woman's savior because she says, okay, well, she belongs to me now, so stop raping her. And she does this for a lot of the women in the city. And, you know, it's clear that as it would any human being who has not grown up in this cultural milieu, it upsets Danny to see all these women being raped. Mm-hmm. And then Mary Mazdur has the gall to not be grateful. She has the gall to take an opportunity to abort Danny's child, who has been prophesied as this mythic figure who is going to symbolically rape the entire world. Yeah. He's the stallion who mounts the world. Mounts the world, right. And it's... And Daenerys burns her alive. Mm-hmm. I, which is, is... It feels interesting to have to remind people that this is a terrible thing to do to a human being. Yes, yes. <laughs> Literally yeah. the first thing Daenerys does when she is in charge of anyone is burn a human being alive. Yep. It's it's pretty clear what she will do when she is upset in a position of authority in the future. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she keeps doing it for the entire series. 
And she vents her rage and her sense of moral righteousness repeatedly on little people. You know, there's, there's Mosador, the ex-slave who kills one of the masters, and then Daenerys has him beheaded because he didn't have her permission. Right. Which is just a sick fucking joke. And she doesn't get it when the city turns on her. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is not... <sighs> Daenerys is just a person. She's just a person who happens to have an enormous, uncounterable power advantage in the form of her dragons. Right. I think we look for, in fantasy, kind of messiah figures you know absolutely it's the same impulse that that drives like liberal political thinking you want to believe that this system can work you want to believe that things can just snap into place under the right person and things will be okay right and i think what the show did is they made it impossible to ignore the fact that that's not the case right and it 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 is really not what people wanted no it's It's not. not It's not what people wanted. I think no if matter- Daenerys had, had taken that city heroically and reigned peacefully and the epilogue had been how she founded a dynasty that lasted for a thousand years and they cured AIDS or whatever, people would have loved it. It's so weird to think that that's absolutely the case, that people would have preferred her to stop attacking when the bells rang and that's the end of the episode. And then the final episode is like, we're all friends. We have to decide what to do with Cersei Lannister, I guess. But otherwise, things are basically wrapped up pleasantly. And it's... Again, I, I, I get that impulse, and I get why people wanted would want to see that. And, you know, it would be nice. It would be nice. It just wouldn't be as good. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. And it... It would be a lie. Mm-hmm. And whatever, I I understand that the genre is is called fantasy, but it doesn't happen. Rulers don't fix things. And the show and the books tell you over and over and over again that when they have authority over people who can't resist them, they abuse it. And this is right down to the nicest people in the books. Bran Stark, when he's still a little boy, turns a human being who has been his helper and his carer since he was born into a human doorstop. Yeah. And it's it's grotesque. It's horrifying. I mean, yeah. Bran's whole personality goes away after that he's he's no longer himself anymore Mm -hmm. this is just how that that class of people behaves that's how they believe they deserve to behave and should behave yeah i think that by slapping a thin coat of magic on a lot of this stuff it helps people forget what you're really watching or what you're really reading you know sure i think that certainly applies with miri mazdur like by the time that happens you're so caught up in Oh my God! Like that, like she performed this magic ritual, and and it's it's clearer in the book than it is in the show, but it's still this obviously something wrong going on in that tent. You're hearing noises that can't be made by the people who are actually in that tent, you know. Right. And it, it's clearer in game in a Game of Thrones, the book, that she has actually summoned demons of some kind, 
you know, and you're caught up in that and you're caught up in zombified, uh, Khal Drogo and you, and eventually you get caught up in Daenerys being fireproof and indestructible in that way and birthing three dragons. So you forget what's going on here fundamentally, which is that she took a slave who she felt should have been more grateful, but who wronged her and she's burning her alive. Now, that's a description of fucking scenes from the fucking underground railroad. Yes. You know? Yes, it is. Like th- that's, you are situated with Daenerys. So you're not seeing her as a fucking plantation owner or whatever, but that's what she is in effect. Yes. And that's what she does in effect. She acts like one when push comes to shove. And it's, th- it's the veneer of magic that makes you forget about all that, at least for the time being. You and know? people and, did. And, they did. They forgot again and again and, and again, again and again. To the point where it became willful. Yeah. And, and so when you... I don't have a lot of time or patience for people who are like, oh, that turn was not set up. The heel turn that Daenerys no, makes it, was not set not up. No, it's not a serious viewpoint, and I, I don't entertain it anymore. No. It, it's just... It's goofy. There's no and, heel turn. She's that person from the minute she puts Miri Mesder on the stake. That's the important thing to understand. Like, this isn't pro wrestling. Like, it's not. Like, these, you're not good, and then all of a sudden you're a bad guy. You know what I mean? Like, right, she's, right. Like, she is what she is. And there are times when what she is is useful and good for the world. And there are times when what she is is awful and, and petty and vicious and gross. Right. And, and ultimately, the real root of the horror is not not so much her in particular as it is the things that her social status gives her access to. Yeah. And, and I think that within the fiction magic is supposed to be an extension of that because she's, she has magical powers because of her bloodline mm-hmm. and her bloodline is also what entitles her to rule. Yeah. I, but I, I think-, do think that so much of the show is bound up in Miri Mesder who is old and less marketably attractive than Daenerys and less immediately sympathetic in part because she is less attractive and we spend Mm. less time with her. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit, I mean, everyone gets grubby on this show, but it's still, there's an extent to which it's like the Monty Python joke from Holy Grail where it's like, Oh, that's the King. How do you know? He's the only one who hasn't got shit all over him. (laughs) Yes, exactly. You know, one thing that I always thought was interesting Miri Mazdur doesn't poison Caldrogo. He refuses her medical advice. Right. And that's why he gets the infection that would have proved fatal had she not turned him into like a walking corpse. Yeah, that's important to remember that she doesn't really strike directly at Caldrogo. Right. Um, she she waits until I mean the, the damage is already done. Yeah. And he did it to himself. Right. And then she's like, you think I give a fuck about you people? I don't. And that really, that incenses Daenerys. Yeah, it incenses her so much that she torches this woman. Yeah. Who screams audibly to get back to that point. Yeah. Like, and and Daenerys makes a point of that. You know, Miri Mazdor says she's not going to scream. And, and Daenerys is like, yes, you will. That's fucked up. Yes, it is. That is, that is in fact, a terrifying thing to say to another human being. Yep. Yeah. Wanting someone to experience pain. That's a sensation that a lot of us go through. But typically 
when it starts to filter out closer toward reality, when you start to think about the mechanics of how they would experience pain, when you start to give orders or take actions that would lead to them experiencing pain, it breaks down. You know, mm-hmm. you stop wanting it because it's too ugly. That doesn't happen for Daenerys. No, no the realities she gets off on it. And I, yeah. you know, I think it's an oversimplification to say that she's the same as her father. Who's this, you know, crazy sadist. I think that she has this extreme self-righteousness complex and also that she's spent her early life being abused quasi incestuously and chased around in constant mortal peril. And then at, as a teenager, she's married off to Genghis Khan. Right. You know, she's never been in control of anything. Of course she overreacts the minute she has authority. She's kind of a messed up person. Yeah. You know, I mean, severely traumatized. Like she, she fell in love with her rapist. She burns a lot of people alive. She steals people in vaults. She's like all gung ho to lead the Dothraki to Westeros. And why not? Like this is what she's been prepared to do her whole life. And again, there's the other thing about the, like Drogo, when he's still alive promises that they're going to sack the cities. They're going to kill the knights. They're going to rape the women. They're going to enslave the children. That's what he fucking says. And it's a big, like rah, rah, siskumba moment for the (laughs) show, you know? And Daenerys is right there. She's not like, no, we're not like, like, She's smiling. Yeah. She's it's, overjoyed. It's, it's what she wants. And it, it's what winds up happening. I mean, they couldn't have foretold it more. Right. They could they, not have foretold it more. He literally says out loud what she will one day do. Yep. He's just not there to do it. And like, I don't know if that is what makes the difference for people that you just feel this fondness for. I mean, I guess it is. You feel this fondness for Daenerys. That Well, I think. I mean, you're, this is, this is taking it a bit far afield and it's, it's certainly not a perfect application of the term because this is a, a fantasy series where race is kind of a complicated issue and the show doesn't always handle it perfectly. But in our culture, in America, the victimhood of beautiful white women is a powerful political weapon in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And our cultural tendency to sympathize with victims of that sort is used to drive a lot of really repulsive social agendas. Yeah. I mean, think about the way that the KKK has historically wielded the threat that white women would be victimized by Mm -hmm. black people or preyed on by homosexuals. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of, Honestly, what went on with fan reaction to what Daenerys did is is Hillary Clinton hangover. Oh my god, I know. You know, I mean, it's not just because of that awful meme that everyone's seen with with Clinton's face superimposed over Danny's when the dragons hatched. You know, it's like I think that was traumatic for a lot of people that that election. I mean, understandably, and people wanted to see, you know, a blonde woman. Save the world and take names and save the world. Exactly. And like, that's just not what the show was ever about. Right. It's, it's at heart. It's a fundamental lack of belief that authority corrupts. Right. 
It's it's people right. who believe that if you have the right king, everything is fine. Yeah. If you proclaim the king in the north, like, what do the soldiers have to worry about? Rob's a good guy. Right. Everyone's cheering for him. Can't you hear? Yeah. <laughs> it's true, man. It's true. And, like, listen, I think what the show did in the final season was really, really smart. You build to the fight against the Night King and the White Walkers and, and the Whites at, and, the, and the undead fucking dragon Jesus. At, at, at Winterfell. And that's, I, I was always the person who said, like, that's what the show is about. Like, this collective threat to humanity is what they should be concentrating on. Instead, they're still, they're pissing and moaning and they're fighting amongst themselves and fucking things up and making it harder to feed this existential collective threat to all of humanity then they do defeat that threat and you're like oh great that's great but unfortunately people still exist and people are still people (laughs) you know and and, you know it it did take me by surprise that like because i i thought there'd be like a protracted rear guard action as they flee you know like you know as they retreat from winterfell where they were defeated and it gets to king's landing and the king's landing is snowed on and it's going to be a whole thing you know and they didn't do that that was just my sort of fan cat like uh you know my fantasy booking in my head right how things are going to go but um you know they 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 set you up with the battle of winterfell to be like oh these are people these people are unequivocally good they just defeated the fucking antichrist you right. know here here it is here is eowyn stabbing the witch king or or whatever other lord of the rings metaphor you want here's right here's the end of the book where the good guys win and the bad guys lose right but unfortunately for everybody, Cersei is still Cersei and she's still alive. And Daenerys, and Daenerys is, still is still Daenerys. Daenerys. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like you said earlier, characters like Ramsay and Joffrey exist to kind of ease us into understanding that their behavior is exceptional, but their impact on the world is unexceptional in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And then the, army of the dead and the night king the others sort of exist for a similar reason like you know there are wars that we all understand are a distraction from the true war which is against these ice demons from hell (laughs) yeah (laughs) right right and then it turns out that the problem wasn't ice demons from hell the problem is that everyone loves constantly having a war Mm -hmm. and that absolutely nothing has changed by defeating them yeah i mean that's when you think about it like after the battle of winterfell everybody could have just settled down and lived happily ever after in the north yeah they make less of a point of this in the show than they do in the books but the north is essentially impregnable yeah certainly even in the show you never see anyone successfully invade it the conflicts that occur in the north occur between northerners um, you know, the Boltons and and John's forces or or the Night's Watch and the Wildlings and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, I mean the the Greyjoy invasion fails dismally. Yeah, exactly. That's like your that's that's your like your illustrative case of like this is what happens when you invade the North. It's just it's you are fucked. And Tywin um, never makes it into the North. Nope. Not so, really. So they still like just had a hard on for the Iron Throne. Yeah. Yeah, they did. And, it, you know, you can see it sort of as like, you know, at, at, at the point at which they sail and march south to attack King's Landing, 
you know, this is a part of you is like, well, these are these are better people than Cersei Lannister and fucking Kyburn, you know, like so you're you're still rooting for them, but it's it was unnecessary. Like, Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing, and and I know this is all all kinds of versions of this this discourse have been done to death. Were they? Were they better people? Would the the lives of people under them have been any better? I mean, they're willing to have a war over who's in charge of this country. Yeah. That's true. I mean, Cersei really at the bottom is kind of unexceptional as a ruler. Right. Like if you, you know, get overheard making a crack about her, you'll probably get mutilated, which doesn't seem terribly unusual for a a sovereign in the universe. And probably she's no great economist. Um, No. Yeah. Yeah. In the books, that's pretty clear, but neither was Robert. She blew up the great sept. Um, also not great. No, but I mean, w- again, religious purges not unusual. Yeah, exactly. And y- you've certainly seen our heroes, you know, kill their defenseless enemies. You know, I mean, like Sansa Stark feeds Ramsay Bolton to his dogs. Right. Tyrion strikes a compromise with slavers that is going to keep people in chains for years. Yeah, and in some cases forever. Yeah, it's, you know, I think, again, there's some difference between the books and the show. The book version of Cersei. Um, More erratic. I think is yes, she's having some kind of break, it seems to me. Yes, whereas and, in the show, she goes kind of stony. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. But I think in, in the fiction of the show, there's a strong case to make for the idea that going to war is much worse than whatever Cersei would do during, you know, whatever 30, 40 years of her reign remain. Mm -hmm. Assuming, and I think it is a big assumption that she lived that out. Yeah, that's true. That's a lot to assume. And I, you know, what she did, it's really not, you're absolutely right that like, let's say that she does kill everyone who makes wisecracks about her. What's that going to be? 50 people? Right. And in the, in the books, you know, if you extend it to the, the Duncan egg stories, like, Blood Raven, who's the hand of the king under, um, you know, who, I, f- I forget even who's the king at that point, but he he's a Targaryen and he's basically good, but he has a secret. It's king Makar, he has a, right? It's it's Makar, yeah. By the end of it, yeah. I think Blood Raven was serving before that, yeah, because um, Blood Raven was on the winning side of 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 the Blackfire, the first Blackfire rebellion. But he he is the leader of a secret police. He's a sorcerer who uses his fucking telepa- telepathy to find and kill traitors and yes. which means anybody, which means anyone who talks shit, they, they have a saying about it. He has a thousand eyes in one because he's only, he's a one-eyed man, but he has spies everywhere. And he also can see lots of things from a distance because he's a fucking sorcerer. Right. And these are the good guys in the context of those Duncan egg stories. Like they're good. Right. They, they, they beat like they beat the asshole black fires and they still have a secret police and they're still doing things that Cersei Lannister could only dream of doing. Because <laughs> right. She doesn't, she has a mad scientist on her side, but not a fucking, not a three eyed crow. She couldn't achieve that level of power if she tried as hard as she possibly could. And like, you're absolutely right. Like, is she really that much worse? Like you might not like her as a person. I don't, but like, 
it's kind of six of one, half dozen of the other if you're the small folk. Yeah, it is. This system, its mere existence is is probably the most egregious thing that's going to happen to the people who live under it. Right. And, and a what war happens- is just going to make everything worse. Mm-hmm. And what happens to the system in the end? They laugh at the idea of democracy. And then they award themselves the authority to pick the next monarch. Yep. And who knows if that'll keep, you know, it's. Yeah. But Again, that, I, I do think that that moment where they laugh at the idea of giving peasants a vote is really important. Yes. Because there's no, there's no way it wouldn't be a joke to them. These, yeah. these people who we love and who in some cases have many fine qualities of course it's a joke to them. It's a joke yeah. to everyone, but Sam Tarley, who is perhaps the only good guy in Westeros. <laughs> Poor Sam. And I saw critics who really should know better, very smart critics, say that this was Benioff and Weiss laughing at the idea of democracy too, which is just that's asinine. I feel bad even bringing it up, honestly. And like, listen, I don't know anything really about Benioff and Weiss's people. I know a little bit about their careers. I know the work that they did on Game of Thrones. That's it. Like, I, I you know, if you want to dig into their biography and be like, oh, see, like his dad was a banker. So therefore he's laughing at democracy. Knock yourself out. I just think that's fucking nuts. Also, Benioff is a... a- Russian Jew whose family went through the Holocaust. So I I probably wouldn't level accusations of like global conspiracy and anti democratic thought against him. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> just on, that, just on optics. Right. Right. But I mean, obviously they're if, just if, guys. Yeah. They're just guys. And it's like, there was a level of venom directed towards them that I've never seen really. Maybe now Martin Scorsese is the goat of the world because he doesn't like Marvel movies, but like I've just yeah. I've never seen such personalized criticism directed at showrunners ever that that was directed at those guys. It was very weird. Yeah, there was. I mean, we we could do a whole episode on attitudes yeah. about fandom. Yeah, but I mean, I I do think it's because people didn't get what they thought they wanted or what they thought they were going to get. Sure, absolutely. Which is, the happy ending. And instead you have Daenerys burning a mother and daughter alive. You know, what happened is just the show got too wide an audience. Yeah. And and suddenly you have the crowd who expect everything to be girl boss and positive and neatly wrapped up coming in and saying, okay, we're, we're here. We heard this was the new Lord of the Rings. Yeah. The show was a victim of its own success in a way that, you know, a lot of shows have had, this is this is maybe an aside, I don't know, but a lot of shows have had quote unquote bad fans. Obviously, The Sopranos did. The Sopranos had tons of people who just tuned in to see you got whacked. Right. Breaking Bad did. To lesser extent, Mad Men did. And it goes on and on and on. People who just want to see cool dudes do some cool violence. Right. It happens, you know. But like You cannot this put was something whole... out into the world and expect that it will not be seen by an idiot who will get something horrible out of it. Exactly. And I think with Game of Thrones, the audience was so much bigger than it was for any of those other shows. It was without precedent in modern times. So you wound up with a lot of people who were watching the show for reasons that had nothing to do with being excited about a shot of soldiers standing outside their tents, 
listening to their lords proclaim somebody king and being really worried about it. Right. That wasn't where their bread was buttered. And like, I get it. It's a shame. I get it though. Yeah. Well, the important thing is we got it. Yeah. <laughs> we made a podcast episode about it to prove that we're very smart. Man, I've been doing a podcast about this shit for 10 years. So I've, I prove I'm smart all the time. Wow. That's so impressive, yes. Sean. Thank you. I, I, you know, you're right. It is. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That feels like a good note to wrap on. Yes. You've been listening to Cut to Black, a podcast about the ways in which we experience television. I'm Gretchen Felker-Martin. I'm Sean T. Collins. And you can find us wherever podcasts are hosted. We'd love a review on Apple Podcasts. If yeah. you have the time and inclination, stop by. Tell us what you think of the show. Thanks for listening and good night. <laughs>